0: Let me invite you to open up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to wrap up Luke chapter 10 this morning. Some of you remember Michael Dolan. Michael Dolan was a guy who lived right over here in Cherrywood Apartments, and uh, he walked to his closest church, which was called Neighborhood Bible Church, one Sunday, and he never left. Um, and for probably the better part of a year and a half or so, I mentored Michael. We we met about every other week um, over over to Starbucks. And Michael's one of those guys who puts up with coffee. He doesn't seek coffee out. So he met at Starbucks for my benefit, not for his benefit. Well, he asked me if I would take a road trip up to Seattle. He works for World Vision right now. Um, God provided him not only a job up there, but a wife. And that was a great thing. Um, so he uh, he and I took a road trip. We got up to Seattle and we unpacked his things. We put all his furniture together. And, and that first morning we woke up, I was going to fly home that afternoon. So we had all day in, in Seattle to kind of hang out. And uh, And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And let's check this out. Let's check that out. And everything he said, I was like, that's all great. But first, coffee, right? I said that because I have my priorities straight. I mean, we're in Seattle for Pete's sake. That was not in his plans whatsoever. He wanted to go right to something. I said, yeah, but first we're gonna go get coffee. It turns out that the Lord was in my coffee addiction because the coffee shop that we happened to go to we show up there and Michael and I, we've been praying, like as we're talking, you know, he had been searching out some churches, and whatnot, but we meet a pastor. We're up there and if you ever want to find a pastor, if you ever need counseling, just go to a coffee shop. Pastors are there. So I saw a guy with a big old, thick, worn Bible and, and I'm like, and so we got talking. I don't know how we got talking, but, um, you know, I probably said something like, you're reading a Bible in Seattle. Tell me what's up, you know, and so to open the door to conversation. Turns out he pastors a church within a few miles from uh, from, from, from Michael's apartment. And so we got them connected. It was just kind of a neat little, uh, connection. I bring up coffee in Seattle and Michael because of this. The key lesson. I almost titled the sermon this morning this. But first, Jesus. But first, Jesus. That in a nutshell. If you don't remember anything else, think, but first, coffee. What was that all about? Oh yeah, but first, Jesus. But first, Jesus gets to the heart of what we're about to read this morning and it will kind of set the tone but first Jesus we're going to see different responses to Jesus within the same family some of you are raising children and you see different responses to the gospel some of you are in families and your brothers and sisters have responded differently than you to Jesus you know that's biblical we see that in the Bible. Not only that, but we're also going to wrestle with something very, very familiar. How do I be with Jesus, honor Jesus, and get my chores done? That feels like a familiar tension in my own life. But first, Jesus means there are many crossroads in life that are not either or, but rather a matter of priority. What am I going to do first, and then I will get to other things? And also, but first Jesus is like my coffee addiction. It's not a once-for-all decision. I didn't decide but first coffee once. I do that every single morning, and that's how it is with Jesus. It's really a moment-by-moment thing. It's not a once-for-all decision. It's sort of this, this decision that you face uh, each and every day. Let me walk through some sayings that regularly that we regularly use in conversation which sort of touch on the heart of some of what we're going to we're going to say. So I'm going to say a phrase and you guys tell me what it means, okay? Don't miss the forest for the trees. Someone tell me like, what is raise your hand, tell me what what does that mean? What is if I say hey, don't don't miss the forest for the trees, what am I saying? Have proper perspective, okay? What might be my my ailment? What am I what am I doing maybe that you're trying to correct with that? I have a bad perspective, but what specifically? Look at the big picture. picture. So maybe I'm getting hung up on the details, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm missing the whole forest because I'm staring at at one tree. Here's another one. Stop and smell the roses. What does that mean? Slow down. Yeah. You're just kind of rushing through this thing. I worked with international students for years. It was so fun to have these phrases and everyone in the room knew what that meant except for the international students. They're like, what on earth does that mean? And then you stop and try to explain, well, it means, and you're like, what does that mean? How about this one? If you see hashtag F, capital F-O-M-O, what does that mean? Fear of missing out. What does that mean? What is, what is the phenomenon of fear of missing out? And, and, and even while you're engaged in something, you're, you're not even really present, huh? Because you're like, what, what, else, what else is there? some of you with the remote in your hand with the TV, you don't really care about shows. Like I literally spend more time adding things to my list on Netflix than actually watching Netflix. That, that's a true story. I'm like this documentary, that sounds really interesting. I don't really ever have time to do that. So I just sort of poke around adding things to my list. That's fear of missing out. So we're in Luke this morning, and the, the title for this is The Good Doctor. We've been using this, this moniker. Uh, let me just highlight something. This is a really cool little feature that was built into our wall that you didn't even know was here until a couple of weeks ago. Our very own Kelly Barrow uh, put this together for us, put this little graphic here together for us, and is the graphic representation of the good doctor. There are two key verses in Luke that talk about Jesus' character, Who is good but God alone? Jesus makes a statement about his deity in answering this person who comes up and says, good teacher. Remember? And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He doesn't say, I'm not good. He's making a statement about his deity. He's the good doctor. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is here on a rescue mission. He came for the sick. Who's the sick? It's everyone you've ever laid eyes on. Who gets the medicine? It's only those who perceive themselves as sick and would trust a doctor recommending treatment. That's who. So the good doctor is our um, our sort of theme for the for the whole book. We're going to look at this scene uh, today, super familiar if you've grown up in church, uh, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha just stirs up imagery for you because you've probably heard this, read this before. It's two sisters having dinner with Jesus. There couldn't be anything more mundane or everyday about this, and yet this one little passage—if you're willing to just sit with the scriptures, a few short verses—is packed with life. I've been so excited. When I don't preach for a couple of weeks, I just get amped. So I apologize. This isn't coffee talking. This is just me excited about the text for you. It's so life-giving. It's so current and relevant. I hope that I hope God has something. I know God has something for you uh, if, if if we'll just sit with it and engage. I really enjoyed getting to hear uh, the podcast. By the way, if you ever miss a Sunday, go listen to the podcast. I got to hear Angel preach. Um, I got to hear it twice because I understand a little bit of Spanish, so I'd hear him say it in Spanish, and then his daughter would translate. And, and he just talked about the, the 72 that were sent out. Remember that? Um, and then Ben, last week on the, the Good Samaritan and what it means to be a good neighbor. Your neighbor is those who you act neighborly to. That's who. Uh, you know this this last week's parable when you take last week's parable if you take if you take the the greatest commandment according to jesus is love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it what's the second part of the of the the great commandment love your neighbor neighbor as yourself so think about this if you take last week's passage on the good samaritan love your neighbor as yourself that was the that was the whole thing right the lawyer comes says well who's my neighbor really and jesus answers it so love your neighbor as yourself. The second part of that great commandment was illustrated by a story last week. And the first part of that great commandment is illustrated by an interaction that Luke records for us this week. You take these two things, this is why, this is why I love just walking through the scripture. I don't think it's by chance that these two sit side by side in Luke's gospel. And here we are a couple thousand years later, knowing the, the greatest command, Jesus lumps those together. And when we see the good Samaritan, how to love your neighbor as yourself and how to love the Lord your God with everything you are and to take priority, we see that in Mary's response, don't we? So taken together, we, we see both of these um, put together. Just before I read the passage, I want to take a quick timeout. Here's the timeout. The timeout from the sermon is this. At Neighborhood Bible Church, one of the, one of the, the very focused ideas that we are running hard after is the idea of family. God has revealed Himself to us in family terms. He's, he's our Father. You are sons and daughters of God. You are welcomed to His table. Think of all the different ways He could have revealed Himself to us. He reveals us as family. So we've really grabbed hold of that. And the implications for that are both spiritual and physical. And one of the things that we, in response to what we're learning in the Scriptures, that we have structured our church around is this idea that if you have someone that you are responsible for, you would call them a dependent on your taxes, let's just say, um, then you're not just responsible for them on a tax form once a year, that you are responsible for them for their spiritual upbringing. And that rests squarely on your shoulders, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, whoever is bringing you uh, children to church. They—they they are the ones. You are the ones responsible for the spiritual climate in your home. And we take that very seriously. And we don't want to—we don't want to move in on the order God has provided and say, no, no, no. The the church is here. You guys take a break. You guys have had a long week. You let the church handle this. We're the experts. That is not God's design. So the way we've structured things around here is to say that everything we do, whether it's kids in service or kids that leave partway through service or whatever else, that we, parents, caregivers, we are instructing our children. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to model that a little bit. I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to open the floor to just say sort of your response to it. What I want to do is I want to start with the adults. So if you have a driver's license, you're allowed to talk first. And kids, listen up to me for a second. I'm going to get to your input, because your input is really important to us. You guys have a childlike perspective, because you're children. Many of us have outgrown our childlike perspective. We need to hear what you think about the Bible. But what I want you to do is I want you to sit and listen to your parents, I want you to hear sort of the dialogue that the adults have, and sort of listen and learn from that, and then you'll have a chance to speak. Fair enough? All right, so I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to have a little bit of a chit-chat, and then I'm going to go on from there. Uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 38, it says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Super familiar passage if you've been around the church, if you've read your Bible much at all. Much has been written and said about it. Let me just kind of open the floor to ask you, starting with the adults, what stands out to you? What from this passage has instructed you in the past? What questions emerge from you? Who do you identify with? Let me leave it kind of open-ended um and just as iron sharpens iron, let's let's hear your questions, your your comments, sort of your your thoughts on what we just read. And we'll do it by raise of hand so it's not too chaotic. I know you all want to share all at once right now, but we'll just do it orderly by by raise of hand. So What do you think? Does does that be profound? Right? Doesn't have to be you don't have to have some big pithy thing, but just what, what jumps out to you, James? Okay, I like reading the Bible, but is there a point where I do it too much and neglect other
1: responsibilities? Hmm.
0: Yeah. So who, who in who in the story would, would, would be tempted toward that direction, maybe? All right. Okay. I would have thought Mary. Just because Mary's the one sitting at Jesus' feet, enjoying his presence. So, so to me, like, that's what I, what I hear you saying, James, if I'm wrong. Yeah, you, you got it. So she's, like, hungry for God's word. Yeah, and, that, and there is a tension there. I totally see that. What else? Roses. Stop and smell the roses. Yeah, I mean, you see why I, I use that, that expression, right? And that you would say to, 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 to Martha. Yeah. What else? Uh, If you can't see it, and if people aren't doing it physically, there's a lot of this going on either with their bodies or in their minds. Yeah, a ton of that. Yeah, Dave. Some of you get paid a lot of money because you can hyper-focus on something. My my father-in-law was a, a career pilot. Um, and so when I ask my, my dad a question about something, I know I better be ready to sit and hear a detailed, thorough, logical, sequential answer to that thing. And I go, man, you know what? Um, I didn't have time for this question. I should have thought that through a little bit. But you want that in your pilot, don't you? You don't want, you do not want me as a pilot. I can promise you. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, what is that? So you want that because you get really paid to sweat the details, but there's a sense here of saying, man, don't sweat the small stuff if it's, if it's costing you seeing the bigger picture. Anything else? Yeah, Karen. Oh, man, say that again louder. I almost borrowed Ben's title. Ben showed me a week and a half ago his title for last week. Uh, it was called After the Heart or Pursuing the Heart, or I forget it now, it's bad. Um, but I almost just borrowed the same thing i'm like i'm like that's the same i said i almost need that same title for for this week because that's that's really what w- what it's about man there's a lot of good stuff here thank you for for that um, here's here's another thought just to sort of start this off some of you probably immediately identify more with mary or martha do you guys have that experience i won't ask you to to raise your hand as to which you are but some of you immediately go yeah i'm more that person Here's how I have heard this passage preached often. I may have preached it this way. It pits Mary against Martha. Isn't one clearly in the right? Yeah, Mary gets commended. And Martha gets lovingly chastised in this. What happens though is when you read this passage and you go, don't you hear some like yeah buts forming in your mind? I mean, as a mom, right? Heather, you're going... Yeah, yeah, but someone's got to do the stuff. Like, there are chores that we have to do. So, so what I want to do is I want to have us sit with the tension of what we just discussed, which are, which are those things. All right, kiddos, do you guys have any feedback to, to Mary and Martha? We just read the story about Mary and Martha. Um, what jumps out to you about the story? It's been a long time now since we've read the story. I realize that. But is there any thoughts or ideas that, that you guys have about the story? Those of you without a driver's license? Okay. Yes, Everly. Jesus was a baby in Mary's tummy. That is theologically accurate. I agree with you. And you're cute. All right. Thank you. Let me just tell you where we're at in, in, the, in the context, because context helps. Remember that starting a few verses ago, these are, this is called Luke's travel narrative. So there is a very clear verse that signals that, that Luke is saying that we are now driving this story to the cross. We're now going to Calvary. And he signals it in Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus knew his mission. He knew why he was here. And Luke says, okay, now, now we're headed for home. If you remember, though, he takes sort of this circuitous route. It's, it's not just a beeline. He doesn't just rush there. Luke uniquely shows us what goes on on his journey from where he had been ministering as he heads towards Jerusalem. And what we learn from Jesus as he journeys are some things. He has this incredible pace. We actually see this right now. Think about what's looming for Jesus. Unimaginable torture. Punishment for things he didn't do. That's what's coming as he enters Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be cheered on and then put on the cross. But he has time for people. And instead of ramping up concrete, direct, intense language, the way we might do to say, okay, I'm going on a trip, hear me. Do this, do this, do this, do, I need your eyes. Do you got it? There's none of that. What we see is conversation, stories, sort of this, this, this really, um, relational kind of language. And we see this here with Mary and Martha today. We also get to see him between Sundays. We know Jesus taught in the synagogue. We know he had formal teaching times, like the Sermon on the Mount. But we get to see what does he act like sort of Monday through Saturday in the unsacred moments, not at Christmas service, not at Easter, not on a Sunday, not in the temple. And what we see is just this, this gracious, like I see individual people um, kind of a mindset. And today he gets at this question, do I do my chores, the things I have to get done, or do I honor Jesus? So first up, what I want to do is I want to look at this through the eyes of Martha and then through Mary. And we're going to have fun with this idea of having Jesus for dinner, okay? So Martha was having Jesus for dinner, and here's what that meant to her. Do you see that she welcomed him? There's a warm welcome to Jesus. So far, so good. She opened her home to Jesus. That's great. And then essentially, think about it, she sort of left him out in the cold. So she gets the first part right by saying, I welcome you into my home. But then there's a sense that she ignores her guest because of all the preparation. Having Jesus for for dinner meant chores. It meant a to-do list. In case your eyes aren't good enough to read my my title slide or what's going on here, I just created a mock things project. I use this. You guys probably have a things app of some sort that has your to-do list going. So I just sort of made up one for Martha about what it might have looked like for her. I have a friend that if I stop by her house for a visit, there will be trays of fresh fruit. There will be presentation of fresh juice and cups laid out. It will all be thoughtfully done. And there will sometimes be, a most often, there will be a small gift for me. I am freaked out by that. I'm like, whoa, I... Do I, can I pay you? Like, you don't have to do this. This No, this is too much. One time my daughter Tegan and I, I think we were out zipping around on the motorcycle. We just popped by. I thought, you know I'm just going to pop by. I don't want to make a bunch of work for my friend. So I'm just going to pop by. We popped by, and you know what happened? Boo! <laughs> This person's over here doing stuff. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. She's... So she comes back. We go sit in this little sort of court area with her and her daughter, me and Tegan. We're just sort of sweaty motorcycle people. We're just there. Guess what? There's fresh fruit. There's a nice presentation. It's all lined up. And, and, and no matter how much I profusely say, no, you really don't need to do this. You don't need... It's okay. No, I'm just, we're just stopping by. I don't want to make work for you. This is a little cultural clash going on. You know what happens? This woman is right from an area. She was born and raised in an area right near Jesus' area. Culturally, this is still exactly how it is. I promise you today, if I go to this friend's house, it would be a flurry. She would just whip up something quickly. So think about this. Put Put yourself in Martha's position for a second. Martha was not being a workaholic. Martha had one thing on her mind, which was this, welcome, well, there is a visitor here at my door, and that is a huge deal. You come to my house, you to not getting fresh fruit, I can promise you. I'm like, come on in, eat whatever you want, hang out, I'll be hospitable, but it will look very, very different than, than someone who's from the Middle East. So Martha is not being a workaholic she's probably not trying to be evasive. She's probably just acting totally normal. Martha is doing what is culturally expected for a homeowner who has a guest over that turns you into a host. What a host would do. What should a host do? Well, a host should get everything right. So culturally, we have to kind of put ourselves there because not all of us think in those details. And so that gets us in the, in the framework of what, Uh, of what Martha probably is thinking. She's just being normal. And you know what? Luke calls her distracted. Luke calls out the fact that she was distracted by these things. Martha having Jesus for dinner meant that she was going to be putting all these details together. Um, how does Martha handle her rebuke? I would, I would grade it in this way. Not well, not, not great. Like, like she, she, um, or not, not her rebuke necessarily. How does she handle the, 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 the situation? Probably not great. Um, Let me ask you this. Does anyone else have a family where people are very concerned about whose turn it is to set the table or do the cooking or do the dishes? Anyone else? Okay. That's my family. We are very concerned about who set the table last time, who even sat where last time, who's doing the dishes, who's doing the cooking, all of that. Um, let me ask you a second question. Do we have anyone else, because we have some experts, do we have anyone else who has an expert at fairness in their home? I mean, just bold declarations of, that's not fair. And there's not an ounce of self-doubt to that proclamation. They know Fairness. That, I can tell you, is not fair. I mean, I hear this all the time. We have someone in Martha who is keenly aware of what her sister is doing and not doing. Adults don't tend to outgrow what our what our kids, you know, we correct our kids for these things, and then we sort of feel the same things, don't we? And then the expert on fairness, she's calling out Mary by saying not fair. So even though it's wrong, it's biblical to be fighting about your chores, okay? So I'm not commending it to you people. I'm just saying it's in the Bible. Martha has some things going on in her heart, and we know what they are. You know how we know? It's the same way we know what's going on in any other person's heart. If I have something going on in my heart, I do one of two things. I speak it out, out because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Or... I act it out. Some of you aren't talkers. I'm a talker. I talk it out. You can tell what's on my heart. Some of you are good at stuffing. I will not say a thing. But you know what? You'll act it out. Whatever's going on in your heart, you will eventually act out. If you're upset with a family member, with a friend, they'll know it eventually. Because you will act it out. Think about Martha. We know exactly what's going on in her heart because she she acts it out by going to Jesus. She's hoping to have Mary shamed into joining the chores. Why do we know there's something sort of ugly and sinister going on? Because she doesn't, think about this, in a shame honor culture, where being shamed is, is about the worst thing you can think of, and you would always try to save face. Some of you have traveled. You've seen this up, up close and personal. The gracious thing to do would have been, Mary, Mary, get over. I need to see you in the kitchen now, right? Whatever. There's some sense of like saving face. Martha acts out her frustration by, by going directly to the teacher, directly to the authority in the situation. But she doesn't just act out, she speaks it out. She speaks out of her heart by blurting out her assessment, because she's an expert on fairness, <laughs> of what Mary should be doing. Now, pause with me just for a second. It's pretty assertive to say this to God. Don't you care? Tell her to help. Let me just suggest that if you ever find yourself trying to shame God and telling God what to do, you might need more grace in being humble. You might need to memorize James 1.19, which says everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Martha could have used that verse in that moment she's telling Jesus what to do. Don't you care, Jesus? Tell her. Jesus' rebuke of Martha is both loving and firm. Do you see there's no wishy washy here? He's not trying to like sort of make both sides happy, is he? She comes to him with this bold assertion, and he says, Martha, Martha, You're worried and troubled by many things when only one thing is necessary. Mary, the sister that you're shaming right now by by doing this, she has it right. I would not pull her away from this to go do something less than what she's doing right now. The lesson for Martha applies to many of us. Here it is. The one thing required isn't you fill in the blank. I don't know what it is for you. But the one thing required is not this. Maybe for you, it's frantic, worried, serving. Maybe it's detail-oriented. Maybe it's career advancement. Maybe it's entertainment. Well, who knows what it might be? But it's not that. The lesson for Martha is a lesson for us. The one thing required is not this. Instead, it's me. So stop and listen. That's the action. That's the action, Martha. We don't know what she did. But stop and listen is what she should have done. That's what's being extended to her. It's an invitation. You know, so many people get caught up serving and doing good for Jesus when all along it's exactly the opposite. The Christian message is this. Jesus serves and does good for us. John Piper has, I think, a chapter in a book or something where it says, tell your people to stop serving God. Just stop. Knock it off. Stop serving God. And his point is this. Stop serving long enough to receive. Isn't the good news that God serves us? God saves us. God does for us. Yeah, that's that's the heartbeat of the Christian message. You begin to get this one flipped upside down. You have every other world religion known to man. It is a works theology. So stop serving. Any serving that we do is simply us seeing the way that Jesus serves us and mimicking it. It's it's like bubbling out from us. We're, we're just we're, we're imitators of our father in heaven is how Ephesians puts it be imitators We see our we see our our god serving us and doing good to us and just giving to us And we just go man, we can't help but just we, we need to go and do the same thing That's what that's what serving looks like The old testament makes it clear what does god need from us? Like what could we really come and bring to god? Does he need a building? Does he need a cool Christmas pageant? Does he need your 10%? We don't have anything we can bring to God that, that adds to his lack in some way. Instead, he invites us, like a loving father, to say, hey, come participate with me. I delight in doing things through my children. But even as I use you to do my bidding, you receive. We are the recipients even as we serve. Here's the point. The main course was being served and Martha was missing out on the feast. Why? Because she was putting together her own little main course. She totally missed it. So Martha was having Jesus over for dinner, which brings us to Sister Mary. She too was having Jesus for dinner, but in a completely different way. We don't know this, but I would suspect, I would strongly suspect, because I've known people um from, from Jesus' part of the world, I would strongly suspect that it wasn't that Mary was just like clueless to her social responsibilities. I think she too would have been well aware of the cultural norms of her supposed to have this whole preparation thing going on, and yet she chose not to. She chose not to get wrapped up in this whole big production of dinner. Why? Because something so incredible was in her midst that she sort of got swept up in it, and, and it, it sort of just tunnel-visioned her. And the distraction and the noise and things she probably should be tending to, which is what cultural society would be telling her, these little voices, her mom's training, just kind of went away. And she was just locked in on Jesus. So maybe it was a personality thing. Maybe, Maybe there was this whole dynamic to sisters. And some of you put yourself immediately like, oh, my younger sister's totally married. She's always trying to get out of her chores. But, but maybe not. I don't think this is a passage saying live a contemplative Christian life to the exclusion of a life of service to other people. In fact, I know it's not that because the Bible makes it so crystal clear. This is a butchered quote, so I didn't quote this, but I love it. I use it for foster day all the time. It's this. Worship of God that fails to find our neighbor isn't biblical worship. Lead us in your love, we just sang, to those around us. So I know this isn't just, all we're supposed to do is, as James was saying, just read the Bible and forget the chores. That's not what it's saying. And I don't think Mary was just trying to get out of her chores, because Jesus commends her. He says she's got it right. So what's going on? Here's here's what's going on. If Martha acted normal, Mary acted abnormal. The, the 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 highlight here that Luke is showing us is two totally different responses to Jesus. Two totally different stances. One stance is quiet, restful, listening, and totally dialed in to the exclusion of whatever else is going on. The other one's frantic and worried about a lot of different things, and a lot of busyness going on. That's what Luke is calling out, normal and abnormal. Upon learning that Jesus was coming for dinner, her to-do list was really short. What was it? It was just go, it had one thing, like just go sit with Jesus, Jesus is in my house. What else is there to do? I'm just going to go sit with Jesus. And I think once you start sitting at the feet of Jesus, you just start getting, you just, you're just you oblivious. Maybe Martha was going, maybe in Martha, Mary just didn't get it because she was so dialed in to Jesus. This whole idea of eating teaches us a lot About our souls. In fact, we eat physically and we eat spiritually. We sort of see this overlay going on right here in this this little scenario. All of us have outcomes in our lives that can be traced back to our diet. The whole garbage in, garbage out. That works physically, but doesn't it also work in our souls? Garbage comes in through the eye gate, what comes out? Garbage comes in through your ears, what comes out of your mouth? So we can trace Our health or lack of health to our diet physically and spiritually. Also, none of us are sustained in a very efficient way. God did not design us to be efficient eaters. I mean, couldn't he have designed us where we eat once a month? My son has a snake. He eats like once a year or something. I don't know. God could have just said, here, here's a pill. Just take it once a month. Don't forget. Instead, we're really inefficient. We need to eat. And then a few hours later, we're like, oh, I need something to eat. And on and on and on it goes. Consider this. What if, what if your sole spiritual meal was this morning for the week? What if this is all you got? Carving out time on a Sunday is a great thing. I think it's a wise choice. I've made a lifelong habit of it. But eating spiritually once a week will leave you anemic. Sick, open to all kinds of disease, listless, and tired. Some of your souls feel that way? Feast, it's right here for you. So there's all kinds of lessons that that, that we can glean. Jesus takes this idea, and he actually takes it way further than was culturally acceptable at the time and what is culturally acceptable today. Let me read you just a few highlights. He says this, I have food. He's talking to the disciples. I have food you know nothing about. My food is to do the work of God and complete his assignment. I've thought about this before where I've worked right through lunch. I've worked through day. I'll get home and I'm grumpy as could be. And Becky goes, what have you eaten today? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't think anything. My food is to do your will. I've had days where I just, it really is. I'm so caught up in what God's having me do that 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 really is sustaining Jesus's food was to do the assignment God had for him he called himself the bread of life he shouted out at this huge festival he says let anyone who's thirsty come and take a drink from me he says this in John 6 for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. If that sounds culturally repulsive to us, to a proper Jew, this would have been utterly disgusting. He says this to a woman at the well. He says, if you drink this water, you'll, you'll need to keep refilling. He says, drink from me and it will become a fountain of gushing water for eternal life. You know what's curious is she says, give me that water. You know why? She didn't want to keep doing her chores. Give me that water so I don't have to keep coming out here and doing the menial chore of getting water. And her sights were set too low. Again, she's missing the feast. She wanted to be freed from her chores. Jesus was trying to free her from this deep thirst that she'd had all of her life. You know, pastors might be the most susceptible to Martha's version of having Jesus for dinner. Each Sunday, those who work in a church or in a Christian ministry, um, they they take great pains to set the table. They prepare a spiritual meal all week long. They make sure everyone is doing what they're supposed to do so that the guests know where to go, so that everything's happening just right. And at the end of the day, you know who can sometimes forget to eat? The pastor's. This, is, this has to account for some of the burnout in pastoral ministry. They work hard all week long. They keep doing it. Everyone's feasting. And then a little root of bitterness begins to grow. A little root of distractedness and hurriedness and being attentive to so many things. And we never hear Jesus' invitation. Stop. Stop all of that. Let me serve you. I'm serving up myself. And you're not even getting in on it. This whole idea of enjoying your portion. This word portion uh, in, the, in, in the scripture is, is really interesting. Think about a portion. Like sometimes we, uh, we just had guacamole. Sometimes we portion control even for the adults. We had a huge family party a couple nights ago. And my wife made amazing guacamole. Uh, I'm the family guacamole tester. Which is really just a way to get a little bit more guacamole. Uh, I can't quite tell. Add a little bit of this. So we had a huge bowl of guacamole. You know guacamole is going to be all gone at the end, right? So there's portion control. Like we were very careful to give the, the kids and some of the adults uh, the right amount so they didn't just like gobble down all of the guacamole. Mary's portion, Jesus said, she's, she's enjoying her portion and it won't be taken away from her. This word portion ties to it the word inheritance. And what's interesting is you look at the scriptures all put together, you say this, you, you, you see that God is our inheritance. Part of what happens when we're adopted into a family is we get full inheritance rights. Do you know that legally when we did our adoptions, that was part of the thing that was, that was sort of implied is, is that, are, is, this, is this now a full son, a full daughter? Absolutely. It's a really cool, beautiful picture of what we read about in Ephesians. God is our inheritance. Here's what's Amazing. You know what God inherits? Us! He is our portion and we are his portion. I am my beloved's and he is mine. We inherit each other. You see why the the biblical picture of a marriage is is, is really fascinating. I drive a Jeep and my kids all the time um, are fighting about who gets the Jeep when I die. It's a little unnerving to have my kids discussing my death already. But they all have come to me with different reasons. And I've got a soon-to-be driver, 15 years old, and she's already making her case as to why she should get the Jeep ahead of her older siblings. It's gotten so bad. We had, um, I have the lovely uh, John and Carol Thomas here. Their daughter, Nicole, was over uh, for dinner one time. We're all talking about this. And somehow my death came up once again. Uh, Again, it's, it's a good weight loss program. I lose my appetite every time we talk about it. And they're fighting over who should, make the, who should get it. And Nicole graciously said, you know what? You should give it to me. <laughs> she said, I want your Jeep as well. And that way, you won't have to pick favorite." So just for the record, it's already Becky's. Becky gets it because it's already hers. And that's what's going to happen when I die. Uh, so just, just so you know. Our inheritance is God. This, this is stunning like sweeping news for us nothing can separate us from our portion our portion will never be taken away from us there's no circumstance there's no power or authority on earth or the spiritual realm that will ever remove our portion from us your portion won't wear out rust, rot, or be stolen your portion will never get old or boring go look at your old, old, old iPhone It's lame. It's useless. You used to want that as your portion so bad. Some of you waited in line for it. Seek God first. Seek God most. And all this other stuff has a way of sorting itself out. How do we do that? We do that by staying in earshot of Jesus. Earlier, Jesus said this. Let these words sink into you. Let the words, don't just hear them. Let them sink into your very bones. You know, busyness and even ministry success can blind you to the main course. When the 72 are sent out and they come out and they're super jacked up, the demons obey us. Jesus says, don't get excited that demons depart at your word. Get excited at what? That your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Be excited that you have an inheritance, a portion. Be excited that you're you're my beloved. Don't get distracted by side things. You're missing the main course. So back to our original question. Do I do my chores, the things I have to get done? Or do I honor Jesus? Of course, that's a false dichotomy. It's not an either or. Many, many things in life are both and. It's really a discussion about priorities. If you were to take the lessons of Mary and Martha and sort of merge them together, what is sort of a a portable lesson we could take away from this? Maybe you would come up with this. Maybe we could say, well, maybe the lesson is labor less and listen more. Maybe, but I think we could do better than that. I think the real lesson is this. Listen first and most listen first and most so it's not just a one-time thing listen first and most so that you can labor in the right things with the right mind you actually discover what you are to labor who you are to pursue what you are supposed to do and what you aren't supposed to do by listening this is how i preach i try to preach every sunday I try to preach every Sunday, not everything that can be taught. I go, Jesus, I'm overwhelmed by what I could say about this. Let me say the right things with the right heart and the right mind in the right way by just sitting at your feet. This idea of staying with God always, being in conversation with God always is what we strive for. You will not be perfect at this, but you can grow over time with this. Priorities matter, and when the stakes are high, they really, really, really matter. Scuba divers are taught this this thing. There's one, by far, most important rule in scuba diving. You know what it is? Do not hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. That's the number one rule they keep coming back to in scuba diving. When you go underwater, what are we we prone to do? Because that's what we've done our entire life. We hold our breath. If you hold your breath, by the way, and you're going down, that does terrible things to your body. Because of pressure and all kinds of other things. If you hold your breath, you begin to use your air at at weird times. If your thing is ever, there's all these rules in scuba diving that have to do with what happens if your regulator gets knocked out. What, you know, make sure you check your amount of air. I mean, it's all about that. Why? Because that's the first and most important thing. You don't do that once. Okay. Listen to Jesus. Check. Got it. Okay. Breathe. Check. Got it. You breathe first and most. Like that, that is number one. It's not to the exclusion of everything else that you might do, but you get that one squared away right away. Why? Because the stakes are high and that priority is fundamental. Let me take this to Jesus. Breathing in Jesus, being in conversation with Jesus, having a posture of sitting and listening to Jesus is number one. That gets knocked out of your mouth. You are in a world of hurt and it is only a matter, a short matter of time before everything else will not matter. Get that one squared away. Breathe in Jesus and and keep on breathing in Jesus. I'm going to leave you with this list I compiled about taking care of side things that don't really matter while while missing the bigger picture these are these are just sort of in the everydayness of life just like we see two sisters just having dinner with Jesus it's a really mundane thing but it matters see if any of these hit close to home you get so caught up in planning the details of your wedding day that you forget to nurture your lifelong marriage relationship i'm a pastor i do weddings i see this i tell couples i plead with couples Man, you're on top of it with the caterer, with calling back, with details, with very intentional time, planning your wedding day that will last for a few hours. Put this into your marriage. That's a drop in the bucket of importance to what this whole day represents. How about this? You go to your kid's soccer day and your, your face is buried in your phone and you only look up when there's cheering. Oh, and then you kind of do a mock clap. And what you miss is this. Every time Junior looks over to see that, 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 that you see, Junior sees that you don't see. So you're there, but you're distracted by so many things. Oh, that's tempting. Some of you are giving me darts. You're like, now you stop messing with me. Here's another one. You fuss over the details of Christmas Eve service, and you forget to welcome the Savior. You don't ever worship even though the show went off just without a hitch. Here's one more. You host Thanksgiving and you are discontented and grumble and complain the entire day. And on and on it goes. You make your own list. Let me pray. God, thank you that you invite us into conversation. God, I thank you that this morning is a representation of us taking a physical stance every single week. It's a culmination of this time we've spent with you all week long. And it's a springboard to the coming week. God, our stance on a Sunday morning is to just enjoy you. Even though it's highly participatory, God, we're not doing anything for you. We're not achieving anything. We're celebrating that we're not slaves who are demanded to produce and work hard and fast. God, we're family. We are invited to sit and do nothing in your presence but celebrate you. God, help us to feast on the reality that we are the beloved in Jesus Christ this morning. Help us to just enjoy the friendship that we have with you. God, as we have songs right now that we're going to sing, we sing this lyric, Here's my heart. If we offer you anything, it's not our service. It's not our ingenuity, our passion, our consistency, our accurate theology, our money. God, it's our heart. We give it to you right now. We give you our attention.